Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Charles Lehman. He's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a contributing editor of City Journal. Uh, He's been working primarily on the Manhattan Institute's policing and public safety initiative, and he writes prolifically for CJ, including a number of recent uh, web articles about criminal justice. And he's got a wonderful feature on the legendary social scientist James Q. Wilson called Contra Root Causes that will appear in our forthcoming summer issue. So Charles, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, glad glad to be on, Brian. Uh, one of your recent uh, pieces for the website, which I, I w- was mentioning, uh, it seeks to answer why cops across the country are quitting. This is, in fact, your I believe your most recent piece for us. The numbers are quite striking, as you know, a 2020 survey found that resignations were up around 20%. Uh, retirements were up 45% nationwide. Uh, many officers who haven't quit, uh, they're leaving big city police departments to work in suburbs. Uh, you did quite a bit of reporting for this story, talking to police about their profession, their reasons for leaving, how they see the job today. Uh, what you know, what are some of the conclusions uh, that you reach from these conversations? Yeah, I, I, I think that the overwhelming sense is, you know, policing is a dangerous job and it's a particular kind of danger. It requires making certain split second decisions that sometimes can go wrong uh, catastrophically even, that if you decide to pull your sidearm in the wrong circumstances, somebody can end up dead. Uh, if you decide to use a taser, if you decide to act to protect yourself and others, there can be adverse consequences that you do not expect. And, you know, that is, that's, that's part of what policing is. That's part of why we have police, because somebody needs to be in a position to enter and cope with those circumstances. And I think the overwhelming message that I got from the officers to whom I spoke, um, people who had retired, who had left their departments in big cities to go to the suburbs, was that they no longer felt like if they made a choice that was going to be subject to controversy, if they uh, were forced into one of these split-second decisions, they no longer felt like they could trust that the bigger administrators, the mayors, city councils, uh, even chiefs of police would have their back. They no longer had the sense that there was going to be support for their police work. Instead, they expected just this tidal wave of fury to descend on them if they happened to come down on the wrong side, if, if uh, an honest mistake was made, if in the course of doing police work, uh, something went wrong. So I think that's, that's really at the core of a lot of their fear is that, you know, because policing entails these challenging split second decisions, you need to have a certain amount of leeway built in and they feel like the leeway has evaporated. They feel like there is, is simply, you know, a whole cohort of people who are waiting for them to slip up. Well, an exodus of veteran police officers is unlikely to um, have a good effect on the quality of policing in the United States, presumably. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, both on the exit side, where you're, lo- you're losing both people with experience, but also just bodies. Um, the Minneapolis PD, for example, has lost something like 20, 25% of its force, and they're just no longer able to do proactive policing. They don't have the resources. They just sit around and answer 911 calls because they can't do anything else. Um, and proactive policing is a really important part of crime control. And unsurprisingly, crime is exploding there. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's important from that perspective. It's important from a, right. It's important from a manpower perspective. Generally, we know that cops on the street keep crime down, fewer cops on the street, more crime. That's bad. More demand on the officers who remain more time in overtime, uh, more stress. And that means that they are more likely to make harmful mistakes. Um, and we also know, you know, that there are going to be problems on the other end on, on the people who are coming in, uh, when you make, policing a less desirable profession when you sanction it when you say to young people being a cop is a bad thing to do fewer young people are going to want to be cops and fewer the young people who want to be cops the people who are going to be in it for a sense of you know social duty of moral uprightness who say if i want to live out my values i'm going to do it as a police officer those people aren't going to do it uh and you're going to be selecting from a weaker group of people who maybe are less well motivated and so it's going to be bad on both ends you're going to lose the good people and you're going to have a harder time bringing good people in yeah um how you know how do you turn this around uh is it a question of different policies that might improve recruitment and uh, slow this this uh you know flood of departures uh or is it you know, maybe these these are both true or is it a a question of a change in the political dynamic in the country and the way we're talking about some of these problems. So does it come down to policy or rhetoric or both? I do think it is both, you know, in, in the long run, it's a matter of policy. Uh, and, and my Manhattan colleagues, uh, Rafa Mangual and Hannah Myers have written about sort of starting to think about improving the quality of staffing. I think so much of staffing, ma- staffing matters, so much, I think staffing matters even more than training, just because uh, training is important, but you can only go so far convincing training, training somebody who will be a bad cop into being a good cop. It's so much more important to identify the good cops at the start to look for the heuristics that indicate that. Um, but I think that, you know, that that's a long-term project of sort of trying to turn around uh, the long run decline in policing. Um, in the short run, you know, there's a reason that these guys are leaving big cities and going to the suburbs because the suburbs, the suburban municipal leadership are saying, we want to have you. We want talented cops. We want experienced cops. We want you to come in and keep our city safe. And that kind of messaging is not coming from the top of the, you know, from the leaders of New York, Chicago, LA. They're saying, we don't trust cops. We think cops are racists. Uh, and and there's a direct, if, if cops do not believe that there will be, again, if cops do not believe that there will be, support for them at the highest levels of municipal government, then they aren't going to want to police there. It's just that simple. And so, you know, I think turning that around really is about public rhetoric as much as it is policy. Uh, Let's turn to another piece of yours co-written with our colleague, Rafael Manguel, who you just mentioned. This one on the fundamental orientation of the American criminal justice system and this uh, wave of rising violent crime that we're seeing across the country. Responding to New York Magazine's Eric Levitz, you argue that in this piece, a progressive policies won't stop the crime wave. Uh, what was, to set this up, Levitz's argument exactly, and, and why uh, did you see him as being wrong in this argument? Well, you know, Levitz is responding to this tendency on the left to downplay the severity of last year's violent crime and homicide spike. Um, and for, you know, the, the few CJA readers and listeners who don't know, homicide rose 20, 30% last year. We don't know the exact numbers, are pretty close. Violent crime rose precipitously. Um, and I think there's this tendency on the left to say, well, you know, it's from a low base rate. 
Uh, things were worse in the 90s. Really, it's only in some places when it, it's actually in many places and it's the largest year on year increase on record. But, you know, I, I, I think there's this insistence that we need to downplay an additional 5,000 dead people from homicide. And what Levitz, to his credit, is saying is no, we should, we the left, should be willing to embrace that fact because the people who are being victimized by this are the people who the left believes itself to be championing the poor, uh, the oppressed, uh, predominantly black Hispanic people. Um, and then we need to insist that left-leaning policies are the solution to this violent crime problem. And, you know, what What Ralph and I would say is, yes, we agree that you should accept the facts of reality, but we don't agree that left-leaning policies are the right solution to uh, to to this particular crisis. You know, one, one way to think about Levitz's argument is in terms of sort of cynical politics, um, you know, crime could be a damaging issue to the Democrats. Uh, it could undermine their control of cities, uh, their push to install progressives in prosecutor offices across the country, uh, even ultimately reaching the national level with, with uh, President Biden. You know, moderate Democrats, you could conceive of moving to the center on this issue, starting to use law and order rhetoric. Uh, we've seen that you know, to some extent uh, with Biden and uh, in this recent Democratic primary in New York, won by Eric Adams, uh, on, in, in part by starting to address the crime spike in the city. You know, so progressives may want to preempt this moderation by rebranding genuinely radical policies as capable of controlling crime, as as Levitz does seem to be doing. Do you think that's a kind of accurate way of looking at, at his new position on this? Yeah, you know, I think I think it is, and this is always sort of a delicate line that the progressive uh, progressives talking about criminal justice have to walk. Um, I think, for example, about you know, uh, John John Faff, who's a professor of law at Fordham, who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Locked In. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's a progressive, he, but the, the book was responding to the sort of, what I like to think of as Michelle Alexanderism, the theory of mass incarceration propounded by Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which is that America is too many people in prisons. And the reason there are too many people in prisons is because there are a bunch of low level drug offenders who we need to release. And FAF basically says, well, that's not true. Actually, the majority of people in prison are there for violent sentences. Uh, and really the majority of people by most intuitions agree that uh, the people should be there. And then he additionally says, but we should still massively decarcerate. It's still a moral imperative that we massively decarcerate. And I think that, you know, what that exposes is that, uh, frankly, criminal justice progressives can either be popular or be honest, but they can't be both. Um, I think I, I, I think Levitz's goal, as the goal of sort of many of the defund movement generals, this sort of abstract if we just reinvest in root causes, if we just target, you know, the, the real cause of crime is poverty. And if we just target poverty, then the crime will go down. And it's, it's just not that simple. It's just the causal story of crime is not that simple. Uh, the efficacy of policy intervention in crime is not that simple. Solving poverty is just not that simple. Um, but I think, I think by presenting this story, you know, they've, they've, they've selected the uh, the dichotomy between being honest and popular, they've chosen to be popular um, because they know if they're if they're honest about, you know, what what really would be entailed by their policy proposals, uh, they aren't likely to win a lot of support among the voters. 
the costs of this rising crime across the country in cities, uh, they tend to be borne by the less fortunate on whose behalf progressives generally claim to speak. Uh, you know, so far we haven't seen a full-scale political backlash among um, sort of uh, poor neighborhoods um, which are afflicted with crime against this progressivism. Um, you know, perhaps uh, uh, the most striking example of that is what we've just seen in Philadelphia, where a very progressive DA, Larry Krasner, recently won re-election by a pretty significant margin. Um, you know, what explains, in in your view, this this um, you know, I don't I don't know if it's a paradox, but it's it's certainly a tension. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think I think we're we're far from having resolved this. The in the Krasner story, uh, the he 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 won an off cycle election with seventeen eighteen percent of the vote of the eligible vote actually coming out uh, to uh, turning out and voting. Um, I don't think that necessarily disclaims his legitimacy, but we know that the more politically engaged you are, the more activist you are, the more likely you turn out an off-cycle election, uh, and the less likely you are to fit into all the categories we've talked about. That said, you know, I I I do think that there are there are signals that people are uncomfortable with the rising violent crime rate across the spectrum. Um, my suspicion is that. You know, you, you can read the tea leaves either way on Eric Adams. He's he sort of pivoted as the law and order candidate, but he has a history of being sort of a, a crusader for reform from the inside, whatever you want to call that, uh, as Heather McDonald wrote about in City Journal, actually. Um, but, you know, I, I, what I what I think I can say in general is that when you look at the survey data from uh, people all across the country, particularly from what uh, what Gallup calls disadvantaged communities, uh, fractured communities, uh is, is that they support having more police officers in their community. They believe that it's good to have police officers in the community. Um, how they feel about the Progressive Prosecutor Project is a little more up in the air. Um, I think the effects of the Progressive Prosecutor Project are a little harder to parse out. I think they're they're sort of less immediately impactful, although potentially quite damaging. They're less immediately impactful than large-scale depolicing. And I think if you ask people, do they support large-scale depolicing, the answer is pretty emphatically no. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is a good transition, I think, to talking a bit about your uh, forthcoming essay in the Quarterly Journal. This is a full-length profile of James Q. Wilson and his contribution to thinking about crime and justice, criminal justice. Uh, You draw out some of the major themes of Wilson's work, showing that the debate our country is currently having today about crime uh, and how policymakers might be able to control it is is in fact a, a, a replay of arguments that Wilson was engaged with uh, decades ago in some cases. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about who James Q. Q. Wilson was. He, you know, he he wrote a number of great essays for City Journal back in the day. Uh, but explain, you know, what it is about Wilson's work that is really relevant right now in this uh, in this current debate we're having. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I, I wrote this essay in large part frankly, because I wanted an excuse to go back and read a lot of his works. Um, and for those re- listeners who don't know, James Q. Wilson is a, was a prominent political scientist, commentator, uh, advisor to presidents and governments, uh, arguably one of the most influential political scientists in the 20th century. In the popular press, he's sort of best remembered for 
pioneering the idea of broken windows policing, but he worked on a variety of issues across his career on bioethics, on drug policy, on bureaucracy, uh, on uh, he actually wrote a, co-wrote a book with his wife about uh, identifying types of coral reef fish. That's neither here nor there. Um, but he is, you know, he's he's primarily remembered as a contributor to the criminal justice debate. And I think a question that he came back to again and again, and I sort of traced this arc in his career, a question that came back to again and again is this view that was dominant in the 1960s, 1970s, is increasingly dominant again today, which is that if you truly want to address crime, you have to target its quote-unquote root causes. And what that invariably means is, you know, sort of deep issues of poverty, racism, uh, structural determinants of disparities that are the sort of favorite target of the left. Um, and what, you know, that that is at the center of somebody like Levitz's argument. And I think, I think Wilson really pioneers thinking about how to respond to this in the 1970s, the sort of substance of thinking about crime, which is his, it's, it's really a big breakout book for him. Um, he makes the argument that there's sort of a fundamental policy error, a fundamental rational error in policymaking towards root causes that there is nothing necessarily more efficacious about targeting the root cause. And in fact, because of its sort of, Intract because of its rootness, it's also intractable, um, and it's 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 really hard to change. And so it's better to focus on what are the most successful, what are the most easily manipulated proximate causes. In the crime space, that meant well, we should we should incarcerate more offenders. We don't need to think so much about why they become offenders. We can think about how do we stop them from offending, and specifically how can we incapacitate them. Um, See, that was early in his career, and I think later in his career, as he became more and more interested in really questions about what is human nature, what does modern science tell us about the classical understanding of human nature, and how can we reconcile them, uh, he revisits these questions a couple of times and begins to think about, you know, just because certain root causes get prioritized, I people have this view, frankly, because they serve their political ends, but there are a whole diversity of causes of crime, a whole diversity of terms of crime, uh, which which contribute to and are not necessarily less quote unquote root. And then we can also think about particularly character. So towards the end of his career, he spent a lot of time thinking about character and what role the criminal law has in shaping and determining it. And you know, ar- articulates this view that uh, a, a particularly punitive criminal law or, or one that that enforces. Uh, that is tough on crime serves to regulate and construct the character, reconstruct the character of a person to be prone to offending. And so, you know, he, he goes from this critique of root causes to this argument that a root causes view should cause us to be tough on crime, not to be soft on it. What does the social science literature tell us about criminal propensity among human beings? This is another issue you address through looking at Wilson's work. How much of this uh, turns on a disagreement over whether responsibility for evil rests with society versus the individual? What is the individual's responsibility here? And bearing this in mind, um, you know, more broadly, what were the philosophical underpinnings of Wilson's position on on crime? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we know, as, as my colleague Ralph likes to say, we, you know, we, we know there's a criminal type. Um, it is the case that 
certain determinant fact that certain factors are contributors to criminal offending. There are more people who are poor who offend than people who are rich who offend. But there are also lots of poor people who never commit crimes. I mean, actually, we know that that crime the propensity to commit crime is highly concentrated within a select population. Um, and they tend to have certain specific traits. They tend to be, a, they, as, as, as Wilson points out back in the 1980s, um, men are 10 times more likely to commit crimes than women. You have to be of the right physical build to threaten somebody if you're committing violent crimes. If you're small, you're probably committing, you're less likely to commit a violent crime. Um, and then, you know, I think you have to think about the world in a certain way. Uh, Mark Kleiman rephrases this later. Um, he said he says that criminal offenders are what he calls hyperbolic discounters. They very rapidly discount the value of the future as compared to the present. They see something they want and they take it. They're rash. They're impulsive. Uh, they are not prone to long-term strategic thinking. Um, so you know, I I I think. Wilson, along with Richard Hernstein in uh, his sort of his sort of like magnum opus, Crime and Human Nature, lays out this typology of ways that we think about why people commit crime. And he says, well, there's some people in here, I think he's talking largely about Gary Becker and co. There's some people who sort of think about crime as rational behavior. Um, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. There's some people, and here he's talking about really today's root theorists, some people who think about crime in a uh, – who think about crime in a uh, – uh, like a, in terms, sorry, in terms of sort of this Rousseauian model of like we're we're the product, crime is the product of social, social injustice, society's yeah. corruption. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and and he he like he prefers what he calls an Aristotelian model, um, one in which you know humans are both a product of nature and nurture that society exists in large part to shape us towards virtue, towards good behavior, and so its influences are as much positive as they are negative. Uh, that, it, that it takes the people who are more prone by virtue of circumstance or biology or whatever factor to commit crime, that the function of society is to turn them away from it through education, through support, but also through the law. Thanks very, very much, uh, Charles. Uh, look, look forward to having you on the uh, 10 Blocks podcast again. Uh, it's very illuminating. The essay on James Q. Wilson is called Contra Root Causes. It's in our forthcoming summer issue. Uh, don't forget to check out Charles Lehman's work on the City Journal website. There's a lot of it there, uh, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a good ratings on iTunes. Charles Lehman, thanks very much again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you as always for having me on. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.